Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Welcome back, you guys, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Solo episode again today. This is actually two recordings in one week for me. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, apart from the from the show that Kyle and I do on Sunday, um, I don't usually get a chance to squeeze in more than one episode a week. And on occasion, as you guys have seen, I miss one. So this, I feel like, you know, I feel good about it. I'm making up for maybe a, a missed one once upon a time probably back around the holidays. Um, what I'm doing today is I'm getting back into modes of sentience. So we did an episode on modes of sentience, chapter one, which had to do with panpsychism. Um, if you guys remember that episode, it was a lot of fun. Panpsychism is a topic that I'm super interested in and have explored a little bit, but mostly through uh, Dave Chalmers, uh, Philip Goff, um, some of these other philosophers, um, and then, and then, of course, jumping into like the pre-Socratic Greeks and going way back to where panpsychism was first written down and, and uh, exploring some of that stuff. But it was neat um, in modes of, of sentience, just hearing hearing somebody who's way more steeped in it than me, um, Dr. Sherstead Hughes, the author of the book, um, somebody who, uh, who's way more steeped in it than me like that, summarizing it, the history of it, um, the arguments, in particular, the way that hearing the way somebody else crafts the arguments in a way that was convincing to him. So, Dr. Sherstead Hughes, um, he had a particular angle. It was different from the angle that, that David Chalmers took. It was different, really, from the thoughts I had of, of my own prior to reading it. So, this whole book, I'm I've been happy with. Uh, what I've I'm not through with it yet. So, you may you may hear more from me on the topic, but. Basically, chapters two and three focus on a guy named Alfred North Whitehead, and that's a name I've heard come up many times in the in the philosophy world um, and in this, the panpsychism world. Um, so, who is Alfred North Whitehead? Uh, why is it that uh, Dr. Sherstead Hughes dedicated two chapters to him? All right, so I, I gave you a little hint um, right at the end of the last uh, the last episode on this book where I said I kind of took a sneak peek at what was coming, and I was a little bit intimidated by it. And this is what I was referring to. And I'll tell you what I mean. Al Alfred North Whitehead was a mathematician and philosopher. And that is an interesting combination um, for a couple reasons. You guys remember we talked a lot, Kyle and I, about um, Baruch Spinoza, the philosopher Spinoza. He was a mathematician, 
right? And we talked about we talked about uh, uh, Leibniz and um, and Newton, and they were philosophers, but also mathematicians. So it's a certain kind of mind, and it's not my kind of mind, or at least I pretend that that that's the case, because I struggle with math. You know, I <clears throat> I could tell you that story, but I'm not going to. I struggle with math a bit, you know, growing up, and um, I think I avoided it uh, for that reason. You know, I avoided the challenge, which is unfortunate. You know, that would have been something good for me. Um, but so there's like a whole language to math, and there's a whole way of thinking about logic and the world mathematically. It's very abstract, and we're not really very good at doing that in our day-to-day. And people who are seem to have a different way of looking at the world, an interesting way of looking at the world. And someone like Baruch Spinoza is no exception. Uh, Baruch Spinoza happens to have been an influence on Alfred North Whitehead, but if you remember me talking about him before, it's like Spinoza had pages and pages of definitions and pages and pages of like strips of logic. You know, he, he would give you, I can't remember what he called them, axioms or principles, but logical principles that were all designed mathematically. And he's using, he's talking philosophy, he's making arguments, you know, but he's using like formulas. It's like, that's a way of thinking about things that you have to really be a mathematician to appreciate. And for me in particular, I not only did I not appreciate it, I recoiled from it you know it's like and for all the wrong reasons because it was going to take work it was going to take work to understand what he was getting at and why he was approaching it the way he was i was going to have to look up the definitions of those words i was going to have to read it really carefully and read it over and over again if i'm being honest that's the reason why i recoiled from it and it's probably the same reason when i looked at um the these couple chapters on um whitehead that i you know, recoil from it a little bit there. So I'm always talking about doing the hard thing and um, resisting that urge to not. And so and that's what I've done. Uh, you know, I, I read through it. I spent some time on it. Um, what I want to try to do is, using his, uh, using his own words here, go through um, Alfred North Whitehead, and uh, I'll tell you what he what he believed from what I can gather here, the sense that I've made out of it, and I'll tell you where I agree and where I disagree. So a little bit on Alfred North Whitehead himself, um, born in 1861, died in 1947. Um, a lot of his writings were, were done uh, in the early part of the, uh, the century, and it started out, you know, as math, and then it became philosophy um, a little bit deeper into his life. Um, the influences um, on Alfred North Whitehead were, well, people like Aristotle, but also uh, Henri Bergson, who um, the author of, author of this book, uh, Peter Schurstedt Hughes, actually via Twitter um, got me hip to Henri Bergson. I didn't know who he was, and now I'm really eager to find out. So uh, so Henri Bergson's on the list, uh, David Hume, William James, Immanuel Kant, Leibniz, Newton, all those names. Um, People that he influenced include two of them that I was interested to see on the list. Uh, Bertrand Russell, which comes up in, uh, in the book. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, but also Giles Deleuze. So Giles Deleuze was one of those postmodern philosophers that we did an episode on a, a little while ago. So that kind of took me as a, 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 you know, a bit of a surprise, probably because the, the um, Deleuze and those guys were pretty uh, they're big, 
big group of atheists, you know. And Alfred North Whitehead is, he's not. Let's just put it that way. He's not an atheist. Uh, so I think what I'll do is I'll read you a little, well, I, I will read you a little clip here, a little uh, uh, excerpt from the book. Because in that second chapter, um, Dr. Shirsted Hughes does a good job of doing the kind of historical background of uh, Whitehead, you know, talking about, you know, him growing up and the influences he had and the ideas he had and the thoughts that he has on uh, on his personal history, which I think are pretty uh, a pre- pretty good summary, really. But before I do, I just want to mention one thing, and this is a, a this is a bit of a bit of a compliment to Dr. Shirsted Hughes because he's been throwing these names at me and they've been gold. So uh, Feigl and um, and uh, Andre Bergson are just a couple. Alfred North Whitehead is is another and a biggie. And when I got to reading this, I started thinking about this um, Mount Rushmore thing I've got in my head. Um, maybe you guys do too. Something like a short list of the most influential people um, in my life. Some people have a, you know, a Mount Rushmore of bands. Some people have a Mount Rushmore of, you know, intellectual influences. Some of them, ha- you know, whatever it might be. Um, I've got one for intellectual influences and, uh, well, I didn't know who Alfred North Whitehead was, so he wasn't, he wasn't one of the faces on my Rushmore, but he is now. So I'm going to say that Alfred North Whitehead is now. And he's somebody that Dr. Shirstead Hughes obviously talked a lot about, but I just finished reading David Chalmers' Conscious Mind, and, you know, he references Alfred North Whitehead as well. Uh, so the name just keeps popping up. Um, now that I've read him through uh, Dr. Shirstead Hughes, I'm putting his face on Rushmore. So I want you to know that his face is going up on, on Rushmore. Uh, who else is on that Rushmore? If you might, if you might want to know, you kind of have to limit it to four faces because that's how many faces are on Rushmore. So we're going to go Carl Jung, we're going to go Wilhelm Schmidt, Alfred North Whitehead, and Jordan Peterson. So I, I wonder if you guys know who all those people are, what you think of that. Uh, Carl Jung is, you know, obviously he's a you know, one of the OG. Um, uh, analytic uh, psychologist, uh, the guy that talked about the collective unconscious, Carl Jung, <laughs> the guy that walked that line between spirituality and modern science. Then you've got Wilhelm Schmidt. Um, he was a Catholic priest, but also an, an anthropologist, one of the early anthropologists, a guy that walked the line between religion and science. Um, you've got Alfred North Whitehead, who we're going to find out did quite the same balancing act and Jordan Peterson, who um, resist as he might, is definitely walking the line between religion and science. There are other people on that list that have come and gone from my Mount Rushmore. Uh, Charles Darwin's grandpa is a guy named Erasmus Darwin. He's definitely one of those guys. It, you know, even Ayn Rand um, was on that list uh, once upon a time. All right. Without further ado, let me just read you this little clip from uh, the beginning of the description um, of Whitehead. It goes like this. Philosopher Alfred North Whitehead's career can be glimpsed through trinities. Cambridge, London, Harvard. Mathematician, philosopher of science, metaphysician. Anglican, agnostic, heretic. Religion, science, and philosophy. 
So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, high level, that's it. That's it. Um, Al- Alfred North Whitehead's life and career can be, and, and, and ideas can be broken up into these, th- each of these three categories. They kind of break in this tripartite, this, tri- this trinity, trinitarian sort of way. Cambridge, London, Harvard, mathematician, philosopher, metaphysician, Anglican, agnostic, heretic. That's a good one. Let me stop there for a second. Born an Anglican. Towards the middle of his life became more of an agnostic, you know, like many of us do. And then towards the end of his life, identifying as a heretic. So that's pretty interesting. Um, And then religion, science, and philosophy. So Whitehead's going to find himself divvied up into these into these areas, and uh, you'll see that is, as we go through here, that, that is absolutely the case. A little bit more historical background. Uh, there's another phrase here from the book. Um, goes like this. As a student at Cambridge, Whitehead belonged to the Cambridge Conversation Society, which discussed philosophy in an open forum. So members would ask abstract philosophical questions, to which each of the members would have to provide a response. So you can imagine this is like a skull and bone situation. It's like a secret society, um, uh, you know, uh, in, within a Ivy League university, a very old Ivy League university. And what they were what they were doing was basically getting getting these people together that had a mind towards philosophy that were willing to to entertain new ideas and um, you know, college kids getting together and th- and thinking big thoughts. And that's what they that's what they did. And Dr. Shirsted Hughes gives some examples of some of these Q&As that, that were recorded that came out of this society, including the questions that Whitehead answered and his, his responses. And it's pretty cool. I mean, what it does to me is it exposes these, like, mystic feelings that I think Whitehead had going back to his college days. So if he's anything like me... Um, that that probably goes back deeper, you know. It probably goes back into childhood some sometime, uh, but by the time he was in college, uh, it was you know full force uh, an obsession. And so, I'll just read some of these to you from uh, 1885. One of the questions was, "Shall we transcend our limitations?" Whitehead's response: "Yes, I want to see God." So that's interesting. First of all, I want to see God is is a desire that I can appreciate on more than one level. It's also an interesting way of answering that question. Should we transcend our limitations? You know, what does that mean? Can we become more? And if we can, should we become more? Is there something better, higher, greater, more that we can aspire to? Shall we transcend our limitations? Shall we put aside anything holding us back? Even if that's, you know, all of the, all of the dogma and the rules and the traditions that, that brought us to where we are, um, should we push the envelope? Should we do something new? And Whitehead says, yes. And then he, but he, not just yes. He says, yes, I want to see God. So clearly, to Whitehead, transcending limitations has something to do with God. And I think that's an interesting setup for what we're going to see today. So there's another that, I call, that I'll tell you here that uh, was asked. The question is, does the devil exist? And Whitehead's response, yes, 
but not just yes. He says, yes, he is homogenous. What in the hell does homogenous have to do with the devil? Homogenous means uniform, means everything, everything the same, you know, homogenous. Does the devil exist? Yes. And to Whitehead, it, it's homogeneity. It's, it's being just like everyone else. Right? I think that maybe that's connected to the idea of transcending limitations or pushing the envelope. It's like you have to be different in order to do that. You know, you have to be different in order to get something different, to get something more, to push the envelope, to transcend, to see God. That's, that's what Whitehead wanted going way back to his college days. You know, he was, he was a kid, you know? I said already that uh, Whitehead is related to, not related, but Whitehead is um, related as a philosopher to Bertrand Russell. Um, in, in the early part of chapter three, you find out that Bertrand Russell was actually a student of Whitehead, which I thought was pretty cool for a couple of reasons. I, firstly, I like Bertrand Russell's philosophy. Um, and secondly, there's a particular thing that he talks about called uh, uh, monism, um, Russellian monism. You can look that up. It's a way of looking at the world or looking at God that's, that's not very different from what we're going to talk about from Alfred North Whitehead, and you wonder if there's some, if there's some borrowing going on or some influence going on. I'm sure there is. Uh, but Bertrand Russell was somebody who was an atheist, and uh, Whitehead was not. So that's interesting. All right, so before we jump into the book, this is one of those episodes where I'm going to have to give you a vocabulary lesson. Um, we, we had to do that once or twice before when we're talking about philosophers. Uh, maybe, maybe even in the Deleuze episode, we had to do that. I think we did, actually. Some of the things that, some of the words that philosophers use, they're like special words. Sometimes they're made up words. But when I say they're special, I mean they're used in a certain way in philosophy. That they're, you don't really use the, the words like that in any other context. So we kind of have to do a vocabulary lesson. Like Again, some of these words are made up for a particular purpose, but some of them have definitions that are basically made up for a particular reason. And we're going to get some of that with Whitehead, so let's talk about a couple of these words. Two words kind of related. He uses this word prehend, and maybe that's a real word. I mean, I can think of the word apprehend, and it seems like maybe they're related or derivative or something. Prehend, maybe it's a word already. But when he says prehend, he means something like to exist within yourself. To exist within or to exist within yourself. To be something within something. To be a self within a self. Something like that. It's connected to the idea of being self-created. Okay, so prehend. That's what that means. There's another word he uses, ingress. I-N-G-R-E-S-S. Um, which sounds a lot like what it, you think it, it, it's going to mean, to ingress. It means something like to project, it's to project within. That's what ingress means. It means kind of means to encroach or to be projected within. Uh, and I, I don't want to over-explain it because we're going to see it in, in the context here, but prehend, to exist within yourself, and ingress, to project within. These words come up. Another word comes up, concretion. Oh boy, sounds like concrete, and I think that's a good way of remembering what it means. Concretion is like to make something concrete, to make something real, to make it manifest. Um, 
we were talking about that uh, earlier um, when we were doing the last piece of uh, David Chalmers' Conscious Mind, and we were talking about Chalmers and this guy named Rosenberg who used this word um, actualize or realize. I think it was realize. They used this word realized in talking about the process of something becoming materially real. And there's all kinds of assumptions that are tied to this word that I won't get into, but I just want want you to know concretion is a word that means to make something real. Then there's a whole bunch of other words that are kind of related that come up. Um, They make me think of Scientology every time I read them, and I mean no disrespect, um, but remember when we read the Scientology uh, mailings that I got, and there's all that vocabulary in there that... uh, Scientologists invented that that L. Ron Hubbard invented, you know, just to have these, you know, ways of fancy ways of talking about things. Some of that, I, I think, if, some of that's parallel here with Whitehead. Um, again, I don't mean any disrespect by it. Um, so these are some of the words: occasions, entities, nexus, and societies. And all of these words, all of these different words, describe consciousness in varying degrees of sophistication or complexity so consciousness an entity is 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 conscious an occasion is conscious a nexus is conscious they're all different forms of varying levels of consciousness that's the best way i can i can explain it they seem to compound upon each other or to accumulate which is how an occasion becomes an entity or an entity becomes a nexus, or a nexus becomes a society, or whatever it is. Something like that. There's no need to get bogged down by it. Then there's another word, maybe it's the most important of them all, because it's related to what Whitehead is known for. Whitehead is known for a type of philosophy called process philosophy. So there's a word that comes up. It's creative advance. That's the word that he uses creative advance and that's the word that refers to the process in process philosophy so what does he mean when he says creative advance he means that which makes experience possible and by extension god and the cosmos okay so whatever it is that makes experience possible that's at the very bedrock of everything that is where god and the cosmos come from They come from this thing called process. It's called creative advance. And that idea actually reminds me of something else. It it reminds me of Tao from from the Chinese religion, Taoism. And I did many episodes on Taoism, you know, from different angles. But if you remember, Tao means the way. And so it's like Tao is God, you know. There's no doubt about it. Tao is God. But it's hard to imagine Tao as God in, in the way that Western people do because Tao is not embodied as an as a anthropomorphic person. It's not, God is not, in, Ch- in Chinese Taoism, God is not an entity. God is called the way. And I think that is way more in line with what uh, Whitehead calls process. So if we imagine like, like the Taoists do, that God is... Boy, it's so hard to put words to. Even the Taoists say that. It's very hard to put words to. But Tao is not a thing. Tao is something more like a process. It's like what nature follows. It's like, um, 
it's described as all sorts of things. It's described kind of like the path of least resistance. If you just go with the flow, then you're kind of, you know, in accord with the Tao. The Tao is the force that makes things possible, the, th- the, the creative force that makes things possible. And that's how Whitehead describes process, the cr- what he calls creative advance. Again, don't want to get bogged down too much. I just want to give you a little preview of some of the words you're going to hear uh, like as we go through. All right, we're almost there, almost to where we're kicking off. There's one other thing I want to add, because I did just read David Chalmers' Conscious Mind, very famous book on consciousness. Now I'm getting into Whitehead, and uh, obviously a very famous thinker about consciousness. Chalmers said something about different philosophers that, that study consciousness. And a lot of the modern scientists, um, he criticizes, because he says that they don't take consciousness seriously. They try to write it off. You know, and he, Chalmers, he takes consciousness seriously. He's dedicated his entire career to it. So Whitehead, he's somebody who takes religion seriously. The way that Chalmers says he takes consciousness seriously. Whitehead is somebody that takes religion seriously. And what I mean by that is he doesn't write it off. He doesn't write it off as a bunch of woo-woo. He doesn't write it off as a bunch of, you know, ancient stories for children whose meaning is lost to time or, or has been, you know, exceeded by modern science and is, is unnecessary anymore. Um, you know, peop, that's how people in the modern world think about religion to a large degree. It's a collection of myths, something that we've outgrown. Um, you know, some people even think, exposing your children to religious stories or religious dogma is a bad thing you know it's like you're you're brainwashing them or you're um or you're crippling them from um you know starting starting off starting off from the cutting edge of science it's like you're you're if you indoctrinate your kids into religion somehow you're you're putting them back into this medieval frame of mind and you're like doing them a disservice these are the kind of of ideas and thoughts that people have about religion today those are people that don't take religion seriously okay people like carl jung you know who was a psychologist but understood that the kind of images that appear in myths also appear in dreams and that people that have psychological issues, especially stemming from trauma, have a lot of the same sorts of stories that you see in myths. And that's somebody who put two and two together and took religion seriously. Okay? That's what I mean. Whitehead is somebody who takes religion seriously. I think that's enough intro, you guys. Let's get into it. All right. So Dr. Sherstead Hughes opens this up, that chapter one is sort of a high-level, or chapter two, rather, sort of a high-level view of Whitehead's metaphysics as Dr. Sherstead Hughes understands it. And then the chapter that follows is a a deeper dive. It's the whole history and just a deeper dive on the whole thing. I've kind of combined these things together. So let me just start here. Whitehead would supersede the orthodoxy of his forefathers, by adopting and amending the heterodoxy of Spinoza and Leibniz. All right, so what is he saying here? He's, first of all, Dr. Sherstead Hughes wants you to know that Whitehead is pushing against the orthodoxy from the very beginning. Okay, so the people that are accepted as the authorities and the ideas that are accepted as truth, Whitehead is 
has always been seemingly comfortable pushing on those and ruffling feathers. Um, I say that because when we say that Spinoza or that uh, Whitehead supersedes the orthodoxy of his forefathers by adopting and amending the heterodoxy of Spinoza, uh, Spinoza was one of those people that pissed everybody off. He said things that nobody else said, basically things that boiled down to uh, God and the cosmos are one and the same thing, or God and nature are one and the same thing, and uh, he got excommunicated from his uh, his uh, Jewish uh, community for for saying those things. He got uh, in trouble with the with the government for saying those things. He got in trouble with the Christians for saying those things, and he said them anyway. He was also a mathematician, so it was Leibniz, and these are people that Whitehead saw as. Um, he, he was basically picking up the torch from them. And that's why Dr. Schurstedt Hughes says that he adopted, but he amended the heterodoxy of Spinoza. So he took a mathematical approach. He had a similar idea about God as it maybe as a starting place or, a, or a, a similar understanding about nature. And then he builds from there. So Whitehead is going to take the torch from Spinoza and Leibniz and keep right on running. Now you might want to know, what is the heterodoxy of Spinoza? If that's what, you know, Whitehead is taking and running with, what is that in a nutshell? Um, in a nutshell, that God is nature, a single substance, which from one perspective is matter, and from another, mind. I think that's a beautiful quote from the book. That God is nature, a single substance, which from one perspective is matter, and from another, mind. So firstly, I just want to say a single substance. So to say God is a single substance, that's, that's already bordering on the mystical because the mystics have such an emphasis on God being one. And then you have Whitehead here saying God is a single substance. Well, that's, you know, potato, potato. You're saying God is one. So that I can dig. Then he says something even cooler as far as I'm concerned. He says, God is the one thing that from one perspective is matter and from another perspective is mind. Okay, so if you go back to our Chalmers episodes, you know this whole conversation about consciousness is, in philosophy, is the mind-body problem. It's trying to understand if mind and, and, and body are something different, if spirit and matter are something different. Um, how do they interact with each other? How do they exist within a human being? What's their relationship? What's their real nature? These are all these questions that are hard, maybe impossible to answer about this mind-body duality that philosophers will talk about. But Whitehead comes right out of the gate saying God is a single substance. So we're getting rid of the mind-body problem there because there isn't mind and body. There's, there's only one thing. And he said from one perspective it's mind and from the other perspective is matter so we're unifying two things that we generally think about as opposites mind and matter we're unifying them into one thing and calling that thing God and I just can't help but point out that that is exactly what the mystic intuition tells you that God is one that consciousness is, is a key part of that and it also corresponds to something we've talked about many times. Uh, Jordan Peterson, when he talks about mythology, ancient mythology, uh, especially those creation stories, you know, it, when he's talking about the yin and yang as an example, he talks about opposites united, exactly like Whitehead is doing and Spinoza did. 
It's matter and mind united. That's something that Jordan Peterson refers to as the Ouroboros. It's exactly that. It's the it's it's God split split somehow in two and yet in unity. It's opposites united. Um, that's the thing that that's generative. And if you remember, Jordan Peterson, as an example, talks about the earliest creation story we have from Mesopotamia, where the primordial gods were Tiamat and Apsu. Okay, both of those gods were water. Tiamat was salt water. Apsu, Apsu was fresh water. So they're one thing. God, the god is one thing. Tiamat and Apsu is male and female, opposites together. Salt water and fresh water, opposites together. That's what they were. In the beginning, they were one thing, the Ouroboros. And just like when any male and female are, are made to be one thing, you can think about sex, of course, what happens is, is creation. What, what happens is creative. That's a creative act. Opposites being joined is a creative act. And just like you know, the Mesopotamian myth describes all of these spirits being born inside the Ouroboros, this is a very similar way that we're going to see Whitehead describing describing the the creative advance. And I, I think this idea of a creative advance really is what it's what I would I would call God. I I don't exactly know why Whitehead doesn't call it God, but we're gonna get to that in a minute, so I don't want to jump too far ahead. Alright, so this is the idea that Whitehead is picking up and running with. This idea that Spinoza brought up, that God and nature are one thing, that God is one substance. And that, and that substance is, from one perspective, matter, from another mind, but in truth it's one thing. Matter and consciousness are one thing. Very mystical, Whitehead, very mystical. And as with any mystic, uh, myself included, you would expect to see something on perception and illusion. So I'm going to call this next section Perception and Illusion. All right, here we go. So Dr. Sherstead Hughes says this. He says, Whitehead believes there is no absolute subject-object dichotomy. Okay, so remember earlier we were talking about we're talking about God as opposites united. Well, if you could imagine, subject and object are one of those key primordial pairs of opposites. You know, subject, that's the experiencer. And object, that's what, what the experiencer is experiencing, right? Experiencer and the experienced. Subject and object. It's really hard for us, even in, even in our you know, ordinary state of consciousness, let's say, to separate them, subject and object. You know, uh, Whitehead doesn't believe that, that that that's such a thing, and that goes completely in hand with what with what Spinoza said about the nature of God, that opposites united. That's that's the true substance. Um, any sort of division there is something else. It's something maybe like illusion. Um, so again, there's no subject ob- object dichotomy. Um, there's really there's really just a union, uh, something that. Whitehead will call a flux, but he, again, also calls creative advance. So you can just think of that as, uh, uh, I'm going to think about that as God. So I'll try to make that more clear. All right, he says, that one perceives matter and mind as having distinct properties does not, in fact, 
entail that matter and mind are distinct. Whitehead argues that our perception is very limited and consequently does not adequately provide us with a full concrete nature of the object observed. Okay? So there's a lot of that that goes hand in hand with some of the stuff that Chalmers talked about. Um, we do perceive mind and matter as having different properties. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine mind in any kind of physical way. That, that's the kind of thing that's meant. Um, we, do, we do see them as very different types of things. He's pointing out, though, that that doesn't mean they are different things. It's like, this is a silly example, but it's like a coin has two sides, heads and tails. They look very different. But in truth, they're one coin. You know, they seem different, but th that's a mistake to assume that they are different. They might not be. And then again, Whitehead's saying that our perception is very limited, so it doesn't provide us with a full picture of reality. See, this is interesting. This happened with uh, W. Stacy, who we read before. This happened with Jordan Peterson. This happened with myself. Um, th this is pointing out that that reality is more than what we're capable of perceiving at, at any given time. And so that we know that there are mysteries to, to the world. It's not possible for us to be aware of everything. Um, and so once you realize that, that your perceptions are, are something more like representations of the world rather than the actual world, then you realize that there's mystery there in the world that goes unobserved. There's mystery there that goes unquestioned. And how deep that mystery goes is anybody's guess. So this idea of perception and illusion is coming, coming to terms with it is very often the beginning of this mystic quest. Uh, the Buddha comes to mind. You guys remember the story of the Buddha where he, didn't, uh, he was a prince and he was kept away from all the, the poverty and death and sickness his entire life. And one day he accidentally stumbles upon old and sick and dying people. And it sends him off on this quest. You know, it's like you realize that there's reality out there above and beyond anything you, you knew before. And you thought you were convinced, right? You were convinced that you had a, a complete picture of the world or at least a complete enough picture of the world that you could live the rest of your life. And then suddenly you encounter a truth, a reality that you, you couldn't have anticipated. And then it opens up this question, what else is there to know? What else is there out there? And that's all it takes. That's, that's the beckoning whisper of fate. That's all it takes to send people on a mystic quest. <laughs> one that I've been on. One that Whitehead is on. All right, he goes on. He says, For example, consider the difference between the paving stone as perceived visually and the paving stone as described by the physicist. When we consider the fact that we only perceive a fragment of the stone... Um, excuse me, when we consider the fact that we only perceive a fragment of that which we conceive as a paving stone, we do not perceive the other side of the stone, let alone its inner busy constellation of particles. Then we realize that our perception and the conception related gives us abstraction rather than adequacy. We cannot trust that the ways things appear reflect the way they actually are. And there it is, that last sentence. That, that is that beckoning quest 
We cannot trust that the way things appear reflect the way they actually are. So the quest is to find the way they actually are. That's what we want to know. As soon as we realize that what we think we know isn't, isn't fully, you know, the story, then we want to know the rest of the fucking story. Um, and that's what's happened here. And I think that's interesting that he talks about uh, just an ordinary paving stone. He's like, look, there's p- part of this paving stone that even in your ordinary waking reality, you step on top of it, let's say. Even, even, even in that situation, you don't notice. It's the other side of the stone that's, that's in the mud that you can't see and don't even care about. But when you think about it like a physicist, like, a, like he says, a busy constellation of particles, and you know that you're not seeing or experiencing any of that either, then you realize that what you're missing it's not just the underside of the stone that's in the dark. You're missing most of what the stone is, right? You're only seeing it as a hard surface to step on. You're not seeing the vast complexity of quantum magic that's going on inside, uh, let alone the other side of the goddamn stone that you can't see. There's way more to reality than we're able to understand at any one time. Uh, and, and it's a mystery that, that, that calls out to us. All right, he says, an abstraction is part of a concrete truth. It is an extract from the whole. To mistake an abstraction for a concrete truth is an all-too-common human error. So this kind of goes back to the, to the example of the paving stone. Um, so the, the paving stone is just, the, it's just an, an abstraction to me. Because I don't really know the stone to be or experience the stone to be a... Um, a busy constellation of particles. I don't. I don't have that, you know, experience at all. What I'm. What I'm experiencing is just a hard, flat surface. That's all it is to me. So that is what I mean by an abstraction. To me, this busy constellation of particles that makes up the stone is just a flat, hard surface. So I. I understand it abstractly to be only a small part of what it actually is. And so that's what he's warning us of here. What Whitehead is warning us of is that we see most of the world like that, maybe all of the world, as an abstraction, as, as something functional, but as something way less than what it really is. And he said people all too often make the error of thinking the abstraction is the truth. So you look around the world, you think you understand the world. That's an abstraction. You don't understand shit. Okay, that's that's what's that's what's being said here. It's this is the mistake of making the representation the thing itself. Okay, you remember earlier I said we 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 can't we can't experience or observe everything that something is. So to us, the world is not really the world. It's a representation of the world. It's like a cartoon of the world. It's like a a high a low resolution map. Of the world, it's not what the world really is, and that's the that's mistaking the representation for the thing itself. That's what that's what he's pointing out here. So it's just another another way of saying, don't be so sure that you understand the world uh, the way you think you do. Don't be so sure that your knowledge is as complete as you think it is. There's mystery way beyond our understanding. Um, to, to the point to the point that our reality is something more like a representation an abstraction and not a reality at all 
All right, he says, Whitehead advances this insight to say that our knowledge of matter itself is far from adequate. He says, matter includes qualities that we might call mental, such as primal basic forms of will and memory. Okay, so now we're getting into an interesting sort of panpsychism. He's saying all matter has mind. And he, he says, think, think about them like primal, basic forms of will and memory. So even the, even the most fundamental, simple uh, you know, matter, you know, quantum particles, let's say, have some mental properties. They have some sentient, conscious properties. All right, he goes on and says, White, <clears throat> Whitehead adds, we should not believe that our perception is limited to the traditional five senses. Both matter and perception are not as limited as we can conceive. In addition to traditional sensation, there is a primitive form of experience which involves the actual absorption of part of the perceived object and of the subject's own past into the ever-renewing process that is the subject. All right. There's a lot there. I think the best way I can explain this, and I'll, I'll read that bit again, but the best way I can explain this is to go back to a Jordan Peterson reference that I've made many, many times. In Maps of Meaning, he talks about a developmental psychologist uh, named Jean Piaget. And Jean Piaget studied children and their development and their playing with each other and all that. And one of the things he said in, in watching kids develop and grow up um, through their interactions with each other, watching their psychological development, uh, you know, along with their physical development, he said that he said that the child's sense of themselves, you know, like developing the, their their sense of self, and their sense of the world around them, that they are constructed mutually and simultaneously. So what he, what he means is that when he observes, when he observes these these kids growing up, their brains developing and they're they start to, to take on personality characteristics of their own, and you know they start developing what we would call a self. That that happens at the same time as their conception of the world around them. The the, the conception of the world around them gets more sophisticated. It gets larger, as the, their their sense of self gets more sophisticated and it gets larger. It's happening at the same time, and the weirdest the weirdest part about that is it's like the person and the world are born and develop together. It's very, very strange. And it's something like this that Whitehead is saying. He says, There is a primitive form of experience which involves the actual absorption of part of the perceived object and of the subject's own past into an ever-renewing process that is the subject. So what he's saying here is that the subject is, is changed by the experiences it has. And it never stops having experiences. So it's like a constantly transforming process between subject and experience. The subject has an experience. The experience changes the subject. The subject has an experience. The experience changes the subject. And you can see that. You know, the way he said it, it's like you're absorb, absorbing a part of this new experience that you have. You're taking that in, into yourself. You're combining it with your own past to come up with a new version of yourself. You're, you're something different 
after you've had an experience. It doesn't matter what the experience is. It could be a profound experience. It could be a mundane experience. You're a different person after each and every experience. So there's some sort of an image that comes to mind of this system that works upon itself between experience and subject and back again. And it, it, again, it's something Whitehead is going to call a process. We're going to see that again. Remember, he's, he's known for being the, the process philosopher. So again, I really, I think he, what he means here is that subject and object are mutually and simultaneously created. And that experience continually transforms the subject something I've talked about before. It resonates with, uh, with something from my own mystic experience, something I've talked about I've called the being generator. It's kind of a thought experiment, but it's something very like this. It's like consciousness is all there is. What consciousness does is it experiences. So if consciousness is all there is, then what it experiences is itself. And then the, the intuition goes a step further that to say that when consciousness experiences, it changes, it transforms. It's exactly what Whitehead has said. When it transforms, then what, what it experiences then is something new, right? It's changed. Consciousness experiences itself. It's changed. When it experiences itself again, it's experiencing something different. And that creates this, what I call a being generator. It creates this something different over and over and over again forever. Every experience creates a new change. That change gets experienced and creates a new change. So you can see this machine, this image of a machine churning out change, churning out novelty. And it's doing it only by its own self-experience. This is the self-contained system and a process that it, that it undergoes. That is exactly what Whitehead is going to, to, to try to talk about in exactly those terms. And the strangest thing for me is to have never heard of Whitehead, to have never read any of his philosophy, to have had a mystic experience that told me exactly what he's trying to describe. And it's just like, it's, it's, it's a surreal experience to hear some thought you think is novel and some thought that you think is profound and then hear it from somebody from 1885. It's just, a, it's just amazing. It's amazing. All right, he's, he goes on. He's going to say something strange here, but I want to read it to you. He says, causation is perception. Causation is perception. There is no causation without perception in the universe. All forces are felt. All forces are felt. All right, so this idea about felt is interesting because it brings to mind qualia, brings to mind what consciousness brings to the table. It, it's what it feels like, you know. That's what consciousness, that's what consciousness lends to, to our existence. It's like our inner experience, what things are like, what we have experiences, what they are like. They feel a certain way. And this is how Whitehead describes it. He says, all forces are felt. So there's a connection there to consciousness. You know, consciousness is the thing that feels. So you've got that, that connection there. Um, and then this idea of causation is perception, that there is no causation without perception, that's interesting and hard to wrap my brain around. The only thing that really comes to my mind is, it's kind of a reference back to that thought experiment of the being generator. 
It's like when, when consciousness experiences itself and it changes. The change is the new thing. The change is the thing that's going to be experienced. You know, it's like if you have the same experience over and over and over again, like, like if you're sitting there listening to uh, white noise, and then, um, and then you hear like a bell ring or something. It's the change. It's like you, there's a point in time where you don't even hear the white noise anymore. You get accustomed to it. It's like you don't even, you're not even really experiencing it anymore. But as soon as it changes, as soon as that, that, that audio information changes, then you would notice it right away. Then, then it pulls your attention back to it. So there's something about change that is very important. It's like the transformation itself is what you're experiencing you know if consciousness was was unchanged it seems like one experience would be enough right because if it didn't change then you're the that that first experience is going to be the only experience if it changes though then you're experiencing something new so i think there's again i clearly don't understand it all that well but i think there's something there about the transformation the change that's that's what's being experienced. That's what's being perceived. So when he says causation, you know, what, what, what is that? It relates to effect. Cause relates to effect. That's some kind of change. That's some kind of transformation. So when something changes, then it can be experienced. So what is being experienced is it's the change, you know? Um... So, so yeah, I think that's I think that's fair enough. Um, this I'll go ahead and move on to the next section. It's called science and religion. So remember, Whitehead is somebody that took religion seriously. He was a mathematician. He was a philosopher, and he talked a lot about science. So let's let's get into it. All right, Whitehead laments, and this is his Whitehead quote here: "Science." as conceived as resting on mere sense perception, with no other source of observation, is bankrupt. Science can find no individual enjoyment in nature. Science can find no aim in nature. Science can find no creativity in nature. It finds mere rules of succession. The reason for this blindness of physical science lies in the fact that such science only deals with half the evidence provided by human experience. All right, so this is Whitehead's first shot at science, and it's interesting. He's saying that, that if the only tools available to science are our senses, if that's the only way we can make an observation, that science is bankrupt, that it will go nowhere. Um, and, you know, we can see, obviously, that the scientific tools have developed since the time of Whitehead. There's lots of ways of observing that are really sophisticated beyond, you know, what our senses can, can do. But that's not really what Whitehead meant. And you can see that in the end when he says, he says the reason for the blindness of science lies in the fact that science only deals with half the evidence. So that, what he's really saying here is that if science is relying only on sense perception, um, it's missing something. Because not everything can be seen or smelled or tasted or measured, right? 
Uh, those, those are those mysteries when we were talking about perception and illusion. Those are those mysteries. You know, our perceptions are not complete. They don't give us the complete story. So if I'm only basing science on my sense perception, then I'm missing something. The thing that I'm missing is the other half of the human experience, the half that can't be measured or perceived, the kind that can only be felt, that comes from our consciousness, you know, what, what Dave Chalmers would call qualia, our subjective inner lives. All right, he goes on. He says, Whitehead sees both science and religion as open to development. Temporary forms, such as Newtonianism and Anglicanism, are but passing skins to be shed, parts of a process that will never end. Okay, so that's interesting for a couple reasons. You know, Whitehead's view of science and religion as being something that transforms, that seems to be akin to uh, the idea of transformation that we just talked about, that, that consciousness transforms. Um, that transformative nature of things is very important. Why would we not expect to see it in our searching after ultimate truths? If, if something like ultimate truth itself is transforming, shouldn't religion and science be transforming? And that's what he says. Then he's like, look, there, there are no hard and fast truths. There are no permanent truths. And any of the isms that we can talk about are not permanent truths. Newtonianism, not a permanent truth. Anglicanism, not a permanent truth. It's like even those things have to transform and evolve. And I think that's consistent. At least Whitehead is consistent. You can also see um, a little bit of the bucking of orthodoxy there as well, like we talked about in the beginning. He's willing to throw away Newtonian science, and he's willing to throw away the, the religion he was born into, Anglicanism. Um, so there's a little bit of the heretic that we talked about. All right, next he says... For Whitehead, religion comes from the individual religious experience rather than from social structures. And here's a quote from Whitehead. Religion is the art and the theory of the internal life of man. Religion is what the individual does with his own solitariness. Institutions, churches, rituals are the trappings of religion. It's passing forms. I like it. I like it for lots of reasons. I mean, when he says that religion comes from individual experience, that's exactly what I, I'd read to you guys before from, from W. Stacy. He said exactly that, that the origin of all of the world's religions boils down to an experience. So I, I would call that the mystic experience, and I refer to that often. I think this is what Whitehead is recognizing. You know, religion as an organized, you know, codified thing with, with the holy books and rituals and all that, they begin from somebody's mystic experience, from a, from a personal experience. And then again, he's sort of bashing organized religion a bit by saying that all of the stuff that goes along with that experience, all of the trappings, as he calls them, churches, Bibles, <laughs> religions, all of that stuff is, is, is are its passing forms, he says. Again, no hard and fast truth. It should be transforming, right? Then he says, the true enemy is the doctrine of dogmatic finality, a doctrine which flourished and is flourishing with equal vigor throughout theology, science, and metaphysics. 
So I'll read that beginning part again. The true enemy is the doctrine of dogmatic finality. So that, he says, is what's making all of these disciplines sick. Theology, science, and metaphysics. So what does he mean by that? So this is the greatest statement here about bucking the orthodoxy and embracing being a heretic. Is he, He's like, look, when people get bogged down with dogmatic doctrine, when the rules are fast and firm, when there is no flexibility and things can't transform and change, they stagnate and die on the vine. And that's what's happened to our understanding of God through, through theology. That's what's happened through our understanding of the physical world through science. Uh, because we're, we're missing half of, of the information. We're, you know, we're incapable of, of transforming. We're incapable of accepting this, this ignored part of our experience, our consciousness. And if we can't figure that, that out, we're not going to make progress in our understanding of God. And we're not going to make progress in our understanding of the physical world. And I have to say, I agree. All right, he says, heresy is a fundamental function of philosophy and theology. Orthodoxy, a symptom of decay. So, again, you know, it's, you know, there's really nothing new here. This is what we just said. You know, the foundation of reality is transforming. So any effort to pin down its nature permanently will necessarily fail. This is why orthodoxy and dogma are, quote, symptoms of decay. Because they deny the most basic fact, this, this fact of transformation. All right, another whitehead quote, religion is the expression of one type of fundamental experience of mankind. Religion is the vision of something which stands beyond, behind, and within the passing flux of immediate things. Something which is real and yet waiting to be realized. Something which is a remote possibility and yet the greatest of present facts. Something that gives meaning to all that passes and yet eludes apprehension. Something whose possession is the final good and yet is beyond all reach. Something which is the ultimate ideal and the hopeless quest. So what I want to hone in on here is, is, is this. He's talking about religion. He's what he's really talking about here is this, I think, this, this mystic experience, this, the, the truth of religion, the experience that he was talking about that's the origin of religion. He says what it is is something real and yet waiting to be realized. And I think that's the greatest... That's the greatest summary of that idea that we talked about earlier about the union of opposites, right? The, the real and the waiting to be realized. That those are opposites, right? Something that we're going to see in a, in a bit, he's going, to call, he's going to call the real the actual. And the realized, or the night, excuse me, the waiting to be realized is the potential. So we've got actuality and potentiality, and those are these two opposites. And that is what Again, the experience at the heart of religion is. It's a union of those things, of potential and the actual. All right. It, it, this, also, this, this bit of, here about it, about it being beyond reach and about it being a hopeless quest, that, that, th those are allusions to the, to the infinity 
of, of God. Those are allusions to the idea that that process that we're talking about, it, it doesn't end. You know, and maybe it doesn't, it, maybe it doesn't begin either. Maybe it always was, but it definitely doesn't end. You know, the process of experience just continues. And there's no stopping that. So that, I think, is what it means by a hopeless quest. Like, there's no end to it. There's no end game. And then this last sentence goes along with it. Um, Dr. Shirsted Hughes says, Religion, like science, is an ongoing creative process of exploration. Both err, but both evolve. Well, what does it mean by evolve? Transform, right? Transform. All right. This next section I'm going to call Whitehead's God. So what was God for Whitehead? How does he see all that working? He's picking up the, uh, the torch from Spinoza. He's running with it. So where is he headed? All right, here we go. He says, There is sentience below in all things, and a sentience above, a God, and above it, a cosmic creative advance. All right, so I want to stop for a second. So this is, what I, this is where I picked up that phrase, creative advance or cosmic advance. He's saying this is the highest thing. So let me start again. He says, there is sentience below. There's consciousness below. And he says, in all things, which, which must mean something like in the physical material world. There's consciousness below it. There's consciousness in it. And he says there's, there's consciousness above it. And by, this, by the consciousness above it, he means God. But then he says, above God, there's a cosmic advance, a creative advance. So I just want to point that out here. There's a hierarchy of consciousness. God is towards the top, but not the top. And I think that's, I think it's weird. Um, and it's probably due to a lack of understanding, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it my best shot here. There's consciousness below the level of the physical. Then there's the manifested universe, which is conscious also. Then there's God, which is conscious above it. And then there's the creative advance above that. He goes on, he says, it's somewhat reminiscent of Bruno and Spinoza's God. Whitehead's God is interlaced within all entities. Whitehead's theology is thus a form of pantheism fused with his panpsychism. So all that's gold as far as I'm concerned. So, so Whitehead's God, is, he says, is interlaced with all entities. So a lot of times we think about God as, as especially in the Judeo-Christian perspective, we think about God as outside of the world, above and outside of reality. And that's not what, what Whitehead says. He said, no, no, no. Reality is within God. It's all, it's all one thing, one substance, remember? God is not separate from, from material reality, from the cosmos, from our experience. God's not separate from it. God is it. It exists within God, that kind of a thing. So he describes that as a form of pantheism, which means that everything is God. The cosmos is God. Fused with his panpsychism, which, which means that everything is psyche, everything is consciousness. So what that means, a fusion of everything being God and consciousness being God, is something like this. God and consciousness are, the, are synonyms. They mean the same thing. And consciousness exists 
as the material cosmos. So all of that is one thing. God, consciousness, and the cosmos. They're just one thing, different words for one thing. That's sort of what we're getting at here. So Whitehead says, God is nature. He says that God sets off an experiential perspective. So I'm going to talk more about that. That's what is meant by a process. You know, when, when Whitehead calls God a process. He, um, he believes that God is vital, right? God is vital for the existence of material being. It's like God is responsible for that, which is something most believers of any ilk would agree with. But how that's the case is going to be unique for, for Whitehead, and I'll talk about that. He also thinks that God is not omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. All things that your, your typical Christian, let's say, would believe. So omnipotent means all-powerful. Omniscient means all-knowing. Omnibenevolent means all-good. So God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good. Whitehead does not believe any of those three things. And if I had to ask myself whether I agree with that, I think I would say I'm, I lean towards agreeing and disagreeing. I kind of do think God is omnipotent. I do think God is omniscient, although although <laughs> when we're talking about all-knowing, it's a little bit of a rabbit hole. I don't um, I don't disagree with God being, uh, you know, when Whitehead says God is not all good, that part I actually agree with. And I know that's, that requires some explanation. Um, it's not as um, blasphemous an idea as you might think. I can explain it, but I think I won't for the, in, for the sake of time here. I'll save that for another conversation. Um, Whitehead also says that there are no static substances. There's only a process. So what that means, there are no static substances, just means that everything is constantly transforming. And it's that transformation itself. That is what he refers to by a process. He also believes that all entities have sentience, have consciousness. So the nature of God is, is wrapped up in this idea of consciousness. And then, and then again, believing that God sets off what he calls an experiential perspective, that's something that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on, I think, quite a bit. And then the other, the other one below that about God being vital to the whole thing, to, to material reality and, and the existence of material reality. So let me push on here. He says Whitehead was not religious. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> Whitehead was religious, but he was not a Christian. Whitehead's God can be seen as a um, more pagan in its valuation of nature. So that, I think, is an interesting perspective in the sense that Panpsychism can can be seen to be to be a lot like nature worshiping pagan religions, but I don't think that that pagan people th thought of God the way that Whitehead does. I think uh, I think I think that if you if you could sit down like a like a Viking uh, or, or a Celtic, you know, Druid priest, or, you know, if you could sit down with somebody from ancient Mesopotamia and you could speak their language and, and explain to them uh, Whitehead's idea of God, I don't, I don't think you'd get a single person agreeing um, 
maybe with some of it, you know, maybe with the associations with nature. But beyond that, I really don't know. All right, he says, Whitehead's God is neither based on nor congruent with morality or scripture, but with metaphysical necessity. So what he says here is that nothing about the way Whitehead um, believes God to exist, nothing about the nature of God in his head, um, has anything to do with morality or scripture. So it immediately takes it outside of the realm of, of most religious context. He said, instead, what the idea and notion of God is based on is metaphysical necessity. He says that he's coming up with an idea of God based upon logic, based upon what he believes to be true and what logically follows. God must be like this. And we're going to see what, what, what picture that, that is here in just a second. All right, he says, in the place of Aristotle's prime mover, we require God as the principle of concretion. All right, now I'm going to stop there because there's a whole bunch packed in here. You guys may remember me talking about Aristotle before. Um, when Aristotle talks about God, he, he refers to God as the unmoved mover. So that's what he's calling here the prime mover. He's the unmoved mover, the thing that moves the world, because everything in the world is moving. Atoms are moving, planets are moving, you and I are moving. So it's like, what is the thing that kicks it all off, but doesn't have to be kicked off himself? The unmoved mover, okay? Whitehead is replacing that idea with God as a, a principle called concretion. So this is one of those words we talked about, or if you remember from the vocabulary lesson at the beginning, Concretion is a force that makes something real. It makes it materially real. It takes something that's, let's say, potential, and it makes it actual. So what is that? It's like something from nothing. What is that magic? That's what Whitehead calls the principle of concretion. It's also what I said earlier, what David Chalmers and the, this other philosopher, Rosenberg, um, called realized. You know, that for consciousness to be realized, for it to, have, for it to have any potency in the physical world, there's a bridge, there's a gap that needs, to be, that needs to happen between the spiritual and the physical. And that's what's being described here, something that brings something non-physical into the physical world. What is that magic and how does it work? This is the job of God for Whitehead. <laughs> okay, he says... That is, in order to explain concrete actuality, one must invoke God. So that's what God is doing. God is doing something called concretion, according to Whitehead. Making, taking something from potential and making it actual. And what comes to my mind when, when I hear that, when I hear myself say that, is something from physics that I love to talk about. It's called wave function collapse. So these quantum physicists, they, they look at these quantum particles that seem to disappear and reappear. They pop in and out of existence. And they, they, they seem to exist in this cloudy state of potential or probability. They seem to be everywhere and nowhere, these quantum particles. And when they're measured, let's say, they become real. They become here and now. And that's what physicists like Niels Bohr call wave function collapse. It's like you, you're, you're, you have all these, these electrons out there that exist in these quantum clouds of probability. Then you, then you look at them, and they collapse into one, one particle that has a, a particular you know, place in time. It's got a particular momentum and velocity and all that. That it's, 
there's something there's something involved here where consciousness is taking something that exists in a form of potential and 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 making it actual and that's very much like what whitehead is talking about when he when he talks about god being this principle of concretion that makes something real and we already talked about whitehead's um whitehead's idea of god and consciousness being linked and in physics you have the same thing consciousness is the observer that collapses the wave function that takes something that was potential in a quantum state and makes it real and actual it's amazing it's amazing all right i'll go on a second here the primal form of perception is the mode of causal efficacy so what this means is the the most basic form of consciousness is causation. This is the causal efficacy. That's what that means. And I have to say, when we were reading Chalmers' Conscious Mind, he said something very like this. At least it, this, this makes me think of it. When Whitehead says that this primal form of perception, that this most simple form of consciousness is causation, that's weird and hard to understand, but it, but it also, again, makes me remember Chalmers saying that consciousness is this weird thing that, unlike anything else in the world that you can imagine, doesn't supervene on the physical. So it doesn't depend on the laws of physics. Consciousness is something else. And then Chalmers tells us, you know, there's something else like that that doesn't seem to rely on the laws of physics. It's causation. You know, the fact that cause exists at all and works that's that's a mystery. It doesn't it doesn't seem to rely on the laws of physics. It just is. Like consciousness doesn't rely on the laws of physics. It just is in a kind of unexplainable way. And I said before that if consciousness and causation according to David, to David Chalmers, if if neither of those things supervene on the physical, when everything else does, everything else maybe they're one thing, consciousness and causation. Maybe they're one thing. And then Whitehead comes along and says, the most basic form of consciousness is causation. (laughs) Unbelievable. It's exactly what Chalmers said. And then then Whitehead says, um, or this this passage continues, says, this is a fundamental form of perception, ubiquitous in nature, from man to molecule, and below that still. Whitehead names the most primal entities of reality actual occasions, also referred to as drops of experience. Drops of experience. All right, so this is interesting, and uh, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going try to try to understand this. When he says that the most basic type of consciousness is causation, I, I kind of get some images in my head. It's like, um, you know, if I'm Let's just say I'm floating out in space and I go up and I push an object out there. Um, it's going to obviously change direction and speed when I push it, but it's that experience of touching it. You know, it's that moment that I touched it and had this experience of the thing that changes its trajectory. Um, and in that way, I can see that my perception of the thing 
and then the cause of actually pushing it are kind of the same thing, right? It's like, it's like my experience has something to do with my consciousness, like we've already said. And that's happening simultaneously with the cause of pushing this, this object, right? The experience and the cause are the same thing. So maybe that gives me a little bit of a, of a visual, a little bit of an image that I can rely on to try to make sense of how consciousness and causation might be the same thing. Um, and he says that that type of consciousness is in everything. It's in, it's in molecules, it's in you, it's in I, it's in everything. Okay, so my experience of something is also a cause of something, of some change, of some transformation. That's, that's something that Whitehead you know, makes a big to-do about, transformation. And then you see here that uh, Whitehead ca calls that, that, uh, that most basic type of experience an actual occasion. And I, I guess calling it an occasion makes a little, bit, a little bit of sense here too because, like I said, if I push that object in space um, and I send it on a, on a new path, I mean, you would mark that as an occasion, wouldn't you? You know, it's, it's, it used to be going one, one direction in speed, now it's going another. That's an occasion. Um, so I guess that does, you know, that does help, help to try to digest all of this. And then Whitehead uh, also refers to this most basic type of, uh, of experience relationship. He calls them drops of experience, like the most basic building blocks of what we're going to call experience. All right, he says an actual entity. So this is just like an actual occasion that we just talked about. An actual entity is another type of, of uh, uh, you know, conscious, consciousness, conscious experience. He says, an actual entity is a process that perceives other actual entities that thereby enter into that entity so as to constitute it. All right, so that, that sentence is short, but it's gobbledygook. Um, it's also quite beautiful, and so let me try to make it beautiful for you. All right, he says that this experience, this most primal form of experience we're calling an, we're calling an actual entity here, says it perceives other actual entities. So now I have to imagine this abstract fantasy uh, landscape where this drop of experience exists in this plane with other drops of experience. And those drops will perceive one another and maybe even experience one another. Maybe one bumps into the other. Um, so th that's the visual that I've got bouncing around in my head here. So one actual entity perceives other actual entities that thereby enter into it and so constitute it. So, so one drop bumps into another drop and they become one big drop together. You can see how in that big drop scenario, you have one experience and, an, and another experience that now exist within each other. You see that? They now exist within each other, within that big raindrop. This is what he means by that, that one experience goes into the other to constitute it. And it's, it's a very strange way of putting it, but deliberate, I think, because it conjures up this idea of being self-created, right? You get one drop of experience in another, and they experience each other and become one thing. These two experiences mixed with one another in, in one thing. And you have to ask yourself, if one drop was experience and another drop was experience, they're kind of the same, <clears throat> they're kind of the same thing already. So when they merge together, experience constitutes itself. It makes itself. 
you know what it was before and after seemingly are experienced they're not not really changed but they are changed aren't they so this is this paradox this very interesting sort of mind game that comes to mind here and it's something that comes up a lot uh, when we're talking about consciousness, especially in, in the, uh, the context of psychedelics, because the fractal image comes to mind. And that's something that's so prominent in psychedelic experience. It shows you a pattern within a pattern, consciousness within consciousness. Isn't that what we're talking about here? All right, he goes on, he says, an actual entity physically prehends other actual entities but it also conceptually perceives eternal objects, universals. So this is another one of those sentences. It's gobbledygook, but let me try to make it clear for you. An actual entity physically prehends other actual entities is actually a, a way of saying what we just said. An actual entity is one of those drops of experience, okay? It says it physically prehends other actual entities. That means they exist within it, right? Remember, that's what prehends means. They exist within it. So just think about one drop meeting another drop, and they join in to become one, and then it meets another one, and they get joined in to become a bigger raindrop. They're all existing within themselves, right? This is the idea of prehension. It's that they're existing within itself. And that may sound weird. It may sound like, like complicated for no reason, but it's not. It has to do with and Whitehead doesn't exactly make this clear, but he does when he says that everything is a single substance. When he goes back to Spinoza, that God is one and everything is a single substance. Well, if everything is a single substance, then where do things, if things exist, where do they exist? If everything is one thing, where do things exist? They exist within the one thing. That's the only place they could exist because it's the only place that it, that exists. You see what I mean here? So this is what prehends means. And I think that's as clear as I'm going to be able to make it. Okay, so, so that's how they exist within one another. He says they also conceptually perceive eternal objects called universals. Okay, universals, he says, dress other entities with a certain appearance. Okay, and this is strange. It's strange. So... I'm going to go back to this idea of, the, of consciousness and the unconscious because I think it helps. Um, I don't believe that the unconscious is something different from consciousness. I think that it's a continuum. Consciousness and unconsciousness are two sides of the same whole or they're opposites united like we were talking about a little earlier. Um, you know, they're one thing. So when I think about that, I think about the unconscious and the information that's in that's that's available to us there you know like we have dreams or fantasies or visions of of things and we don't know where they come from well they come from our unconscious and they seem to have meaning for us sometimes you know our dreams or fantasies um, and we wonder where that meaning comes from and it, it comes from the unconscious you know and we don't really know what that means but someone like Carl Jung talks about that he says that there are things in the unconscious that are called archetypes and what they are are, are forms you know, and they will they will um, show up in your dreams attached to these images. Like you're 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 dreaming about something weird, but those images actually actually fit the, these archetypal molds. You know, they actually fit these forms that already exist in your psyche. Things that you don't understand, 
um, at least not fully, but things that will help you to understand, you know, or maybe that will, will, will reveal the meaning that's being, that's being concealed there. You know, this is, this is, um, you know, not, not, it's, not entirely uncontroversial because we're talking about things like dream interpretation and uh, you know um, uh, psychological analysis and all that. But um, but this I think will help. So imagine this: imagine that that unconscious is a place like that where these archetypes are, and you can tap into them with your dreams uh, while you're dreaming and all that. But imagine if you could dive in there, if you could be conscious in your unconscious, you would have access to these archetypes while you're while you're there. They'd be all around you. And this is sort of what I have in mind. If, if I'm, a, a, again, a little drop of experience and I'm existing within myself, I'm imagining like, like a conscious thing existing within its own unconscious. That's what I'm trying to picture, basically. And these universals that it, that it, it experiences while it's existing there within itself, those are something like the archetypes. You know, and the archetypes are things like, like uh, the anima, you know, the mother, um, um, the shadow, you know, things like that that appear in myths and dreams and so forth. So imagine that you're one of these drops of experience, and you're existing within your unconscious. Um, some of those drops of experience might take the form, you know, these universal forms that exist in your unconscious. Some of them might become the shadow. They might seem to you like the shadow. Some might seem to you like the mother or the anima or something like that. Um, that that's probably the best I can, I can do to try to make sense of what that means. Because Whitehead, what Whitehead is trying to say here is that there's something more going on than just experience. There's something he's calling eternal objects or universals. And it's not clear where they come from. And this is probably lack of understanding on my part, but that's the best I can do to try to understand wh- where they come from. There's something like there's something like archetypes that give form to the undifferentiated force of being. That's something like that. Now he's going to give us an example of what he means by universals. So let, let let me try to make this clear this way. He says, for instance, I may see an, an apple as green. The actual apple has a physical, finite existence, but the color of it does not perish with it. A color has a type of existence beyond each of its instantiations. The color green was not born, nor will it die. It is an eternal object of cognition. As well as colors and other qualia, eternal objects include abstract objects, such as mathematical theorems, many of which have an existence, though they have not yet been discovered or realized in our world. Indeed, eternal objects exist in another world, the realm of eternality. Okay. And that may seem fanciful, that, that there's another world, the realm of eternality. What it reminds me of is Plato. Plato talking about the world of forms, and the, his allegory of the cave. Um, if you guys are familiar with Plato, or have heard me talk about Plato before, it reminds me of the world of forms that he talks about. This this realm of eternality that that uh, Whitehead is is speaking of. Uh, now I completely understand the point he's making that that the color green doesn't isn't born and it won't die, and that it's not it's not exactly the same thing as any green object. 
Like you take all the objects away, I still understand what green is. It exists, even though it's not manifested in an object, it exists in my mind. It, it exists abstractly in my mind. And I, 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 that, this is what he means when he says that the, those ideas exist in the realm of eternality. And it's what Plato meant when he said there was the world of forms. You know, if you remember, the example I always give is, you know, Plato says that there's this thing called beauty. And we all agree there is. But you can't, but you can't put it in a jar labeled beauty. It, it only exists that way, by itself, in your mind. So there might be a beautiful object like a flower or a sunset or a, or a human body. But what's beautiful about them is not... What's common about them that's beautiful is not easy to pin down. Whatever that thing is doesn't exist really in the flower or in the sunset or in the body. It exists in my mind, in the realm of eternality, within consciousness somehow. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And so, <clears throat> so I look at this, this idea of something existing in psyche or existing abstractly. I look at that as, as like a place. Kind of like I look at the unconscious as a place. Um, a guy, W. Stacy that I referenced earlier, he would call it non-being to describe this realm of eternality. It's a place, something like that. It's the place that represents the other side of being. The, uh, the place where we are God. It's like material reality on one side and God on the other. But we're just one thing. Like matter on one side and potentiality on the other. Something like that. All right. Whitehead names these eternal objects potentialities. And he says we have two modes of existence. Actuality and potentiality. He says this realm of potentiality, of eternal objects, is one of the two aspects of God. Um, the first one is called the primordial nature of God. So I've got to stop here. I, I have to say again that there's these parallels that come up between my mystic experiences and, and certain other people that we talk about. And this is one of them. When I had a mystic experience and sat down and tried to think about the mysteries of the universe, I understood God to be... I understood God to be something like being... Which, is, which I think of as the material world, and as potentiality. And I even use that word, potentiality, exactly like that. And here it comes right out of Whitehead's mouth. The eternal objects are potentiality. And what does that mean? It means like what, what I always try to describe when I say objective reality is like the, the Terminator 2 T-1000 liquid metal stuff. It, it's the can take any shape, can become anything stuff. That's how I feel about what God is. That's why I call it potentiality. It's something that could become anything. So you've got that, and then you've got once something that can become anything becomes something, then it becomes actual, right? Then it becomes materially real. So you've got God or potential on one side, and you've got actual or, or material reality on the other. And I think those two aspects are two aspects of one thing called God. 
Whitehead seems to agree, which is mind-blowing to me. I completely love it. And that, sir, is why you're on my Mount Rushmore. All right, so he says that there's two things here. There's this, there's this, uh, uh, the potential and the actual. They're both aspects of God. One of them is called the primordial nature of God. That's the, uh, the potential. The other one is called the consequent nature of God. Um, so let me, let me uh, I don't want to skip ahead. I'm, I'm going to read this next bit. It says, an actual entity. So this is one of those you know, most basic forms of consciousness, one of those drops of experience. Requires this primordial aspect of God for the process of self-creation that Whitehead calls concrescence. Each actual entity has the purpose of achieving its self-creation. All right, so, so you have a drop of experience, and what it and what it what it wants. It's a weird way of putting it. What it, what its purpose is is to become real, and it does that through God. And Whitehead just says, "Look, it's done through a principle called concrescence." And I, I understand you've made up a word, and I understand what it means. But what he means by it is simply that God makes it real. There's no specific mechanics of how concrescence works. That's a mystery that I'd like to know the answer to. I don't think Whitehead does either. It's conceptual for him. So these drops of experience, they get born within themselves. And then they seek to be made real. And they do that through God. This is, how, this is what he's describing. Of manifesting... Of, of of consciousness manifesting itself from potential into actual reality. That's what he's describing. That's the process that he that he's describing. The process that he calls the creative advance that he that he believes God to be. Although he doesn't call it God, we'll get into that here uh, here shortly. All right. Then there's the second aspect of God, the consequent nature of God. Said it. This is not transcendent, but imminent. Each actual occasion is felt by God and becomes eternally part of God. So the consequent nature of God, he says, this part aligns to the actual part. So you've got the primordial part, which is the potential part of God. Then you've got this consequent part, which is the reality, the material reality part. And the way he says that is that it's not transcendent, but imminent. And imminent means here and now. You know, the world. You know, being here and now. God is both potential and being here and now. And when the and when these when God becomes, you know, bit by bit made actual, that those bits become part of God. Now I, I think that goes without saying, but what he says here is that is that they're felt by God. And I think what that means is that they're experienced by God. And I think that's another way of saying that God and consciousness are one thing. It's also another way of putting something that I say often, which is that we are the experience God is having. So experience is made real and felt by God. Kind of makes you wonder whether experience isn't whether whether experience doesn't exist just so that God can feel something. And if God is that which feels, that's consciousness, baby. That's consciousness. All right, go on. Here's a quote. It says, God, God's aim for actual occasions 
is depth of satisfaction. So God's aim for 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 these you know creating creating experience, let's say, is depth of satisfaction towards the fulfillment of His own being. Thus, God's purpose in the creative advance is the evocation of intensities. What does he mean by that? Something like God's purpose is to enjoy the experiential intensities that he provokes. And this is, this is hard to understand, but it's like, so imagine, oh boy, so imagine God is a guitar string and the guitar string has the ability to vibrate itself. I'm sorry to give you this image, but this is the one that comes to mind. Imagine God is a guitar string and God has the ability to vibrate itself. This is like saying that God vibrates itself on that string so that it can so that it can feel itself, that that's something that it enjoys, that it that is satisfying to it. And that and that vibrating itself um, in different patterns, different frequencies, you know, play, playing a song with itself, let's say, that that would be something that it would enjoy more than just a simple, you know, strumming of, it, of, its, of its string. Um, this, is, this is what it means when it says, by satisfaction, it, it means to f- fulfill its own being. It's like, it's like God being God. God doing what God does, and it likes it. So that's the whole purpose of it doing it. God likes doing. God likes being God. So he's going to carry on being God. That's kind of like that's kind of like the circular reasoning that that this seems like to me. I think there's a grain of truth in it. I just don't know that it's very well articulated. I think what the grain of truth is is that God God fulfills itself. I think that's the same thing as saying God is self-created, but I'm going to leave that for a little bit because I'm going to I'm going to give you a little bit more on that. So back to the book here it says God, Whitehead's God neither gives us morality nor does he provide the ultimate ground of reality. So this is where we're going to start talking about God differently than the creative advance. So when I think about God, I think about the thing that's responsible for reality. That's what Whitehead calls the creative advance. So God, for him, is something different. So let me give give this to you. Whitehead's God neither gives us morality nor does he provide the ultimate ground of reality. Uh, God itself is an actual entity. God is a unique actual entity, but he's not supreme. Okay, interesting. So God, according to Whitehead, is one of these accumulations of experience, an actual entity. You know? He's some sort of special kind, but but there are lots of others. They're also actual entities. He's not supreme at all. It's the creative advance. It's the process that's supreme. So I want to make a joke here. This idea of God being an actual entity just reminds me of the way Scientologists use weird phrases like operating Thetan. Um, God is an operate, operating Thetan. It's like a made-up title with a, with a definition. Uh, I realize Whitehead is doing it legitimately to make, to, to make a very complex uh, and precise point, and L. Ron Hubbard was doing it to be an asshole, but I'm just pointing it out. God itself um, is an actual entity. So this is, this is interesting. It's like God 
in Whitehead's perspective, isn't the source of reality. The, the processes, the creative advance is. But the creative advance does create God. And then God goes on to, to give concrescence, right? God goes on to, to make things real. And so God is part of the process, but he's not the starter of the process, and he's not the process itself. He's a, just a part of the process. And that's strange, but it's not entirely unheard of. That idea shows up in a lot of Gnostic Christian groups. Uh, there's a word for it. I'll probably mispronounce it, but it's called demiurge. Demiurge. Okay, so I think it's a Greek word. But these Gnostic Christians, these early Christian groups, many of them believed that the, the, the God of the Bible was not really God at all. That there was a higher God than the God of the Bible. The higher God created the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible then turns around and creates the cosmos. The actual God just sort of fades off and doesn't do anything else. And the God that he created is masquerading as God, pretending that he did all the, that, you know, he did all the work and, uh, and all that. But really, he's some kind of a phony. Some people even say that the devil, um, the biblical devil, is the demiurge. It's the God that isn't really God. And these Gnostic groups thought because they knew the secret that the God everybody else is worshiping isn't the real God, that they could, could go ahead and worship the actual God, and then they would be the true believers. And everybody else is just, you know, covert devil worshipers. This is the idea of the Demiurge, that there was a creator God that wasn't God, but just, just, some, just another one of the gods that was made by God. And this is sort of what Whitehead's metaphysics seems to be. The creative advance, the process, that is God. God is the demiurge, somebody that's responsible for material reality, but not, not the source, not the real source. All right, he goes on, he says, it is creativity into novelty that is the fundamental process of reality. So this is him describing that creative advance. The undifferentiated potential being brought into differentiated being. That's how I would put it. He says, it is creativity into novelty. It is potential into actual. That is the fundamental process of reality. He goes on, he says, the so-called laws of nature are mere abstractions that reflect the regular character of such entities. Matter itself evolves along with the laws of nature. So he's saying even the laws of nature, the things that govern physics that we think are unchanging, even those are transforming along with the cosmos, along with nature. Because it's all part of a process, and that process is a constant transformation. Right, he says, entities are determined in part, not by laws, but by their immediate predecessors, the actual entities from which they stem, and by the eternal objects that ingress into them. Okay, so you can imagine that Whitehead paints this picture of these drops of experience that are existing within themselves and, and encountering, these, uh, encountering themselves with these archetypes laid over them, these eternal objects that he's, that he's talking about. This is what's going on. And that that's not governed by laws. It's not governed like you think physics is governed. It's more random than that. 
it's it's governed by it's governed by their immediate precursors. Remember, these drops of experience used to be, you know, on their own and maybe merged with others, let's say. So this whole process of of being and becoming, of moving in and out of itself, that that that, that process dictates what comes next. That process dictates what new things get to become real. That's this process of transformation that we see everywhere. You see an evolution with with our biology. You see it in the you know the uh, currents in the ocean and in the and in the the air. You see it in the cycle of you know the rain cycle. You see this constant process of changing everywhere you look. That's what he's pointing to. All right, says Whitehead affirms that cosmic order decays not into disorder, but by passing into a new type of order. And he says, that is my answer with respect to the question of entropy. And so this is sort of a physics question too, but the idea that everything decays, everything that we know of dies, breaks down, and decays. That's what he means by entropy. And Whitehead, Whitehead's idea here is not that those things are breaking down and decaying, but that they're transforming into something new. And that's what the process is. It's taking uh, creativity, which is that potential, that, that thing that, that, again, the creative advance is, and it's cranking out reality. It's, it's, it's taking that creativity, and it's cranking out novelty, as Whitehead said. So when things decay, they're not, they're not breaking down. They're, they're getting transformed into something new, and it's all part of the process. All right, he says, this absurdly limited number of three dimensions of space is a sign that you've got something characteristic of a special order. So he's just talking about the way our reality seems. It's like the fact that there are only three dimensions instead of any number of dimensions. That should be a sign to you that there's something special, there's some kind of special order going on. So some, something in, intentionally limited, you know? He says, yet there are other types of order of which you and I have not the faintest notion. He says, the universe is always driving on to novelty. Okay, so what that means is, he specifically talks about dimensions, but what, what this means is that there is way more going on in reality, like he said when we were talking about perception, that we're, that we're capable of understanding. So there's a lot more potential um, than, we're possible, than, than we're capable of understanding. And then he ends by saying the universe is always driving on to novelty. And so the process is infinite. It's always creating something new from within itself. And that process never stops. And again, there's, there's more room and more opportunity for that in the world than we can even imagine. And then he says, Whitehead advances a process philosophy of organism or even matter space-time, and the laws of nature are in a state of flux. Organisms evolve, and all actuality is organism. So that's a pretty good way of, of illustrating this, this transforming nature of, of things. You know, from the, from the creative advance all the way to you and I. That everything there is an organism. Things existing within themselves, moving and living within themselves, constantly changing all the time at every level. That's the idea of this fractal, you know, transforming flux. Then he says, Whitehead affirms 
that God is also immersed in the flux of actuality. And I actually love that. I actually agree with that, but not in the same way that Whitehead intends. You know how Whitehead said that, uh, that God is sort of emerges you know, partway down the process, that God is not the first thing. Creative advance is the first thing. God, God is, you know, a, a, experience accumulates to a sufficient point until God can exist. So God exists at some point along the way. And he says, because of that, God is also part of this constant state of transformation. Now, that part I agree with. I don't believe that God is somewhere, you know, invented somewhere partway through the process. I believe God is the creative advance. But I do believe that the creative advance is transforming. I believe that the transformative nature of God is reflected in the transformative nature of being, the world. We're constantly, tra- you know, changing and transforming and decaying and dying. Uh, entropy is a thing because because we are the same thing that God is, and God is transforming. So we are transforming. That's my perspective. And I can, I can, I can still hold that perspective and keep God at the top, which is something that I just can't. I have a very hard time understanding why Whitehead has done it. I sort of wish he would have used another word other than God to talk about this thing that, that you know, makes the, that, that acts this, this principle of concrescence out and makes things real. Pick a different word, man. I don't, I don't, it's confusing and I just don't agree with it. All right. So this transforming relationship between God and being, it's just important to know that God is part of it. And I agree with that. Um, so there's like, there's a reciprocal dance going on between between the creative advance and being. And that, I think, is what Whitehead calls process. And he ends by saying that the creative advance is an unforgiving torrent. There's no end to it. All right, guys. Thanks for, thanks for sticking with me. I'm going uh, to give you my closing remarks here, which are... Um, which are prepared. So let me just read this to you, and then uh, we can go about our days. All right, I admit I was skeptical when I first started reading Dr. Sherstead Hughes' piece on Whitehead. The outline of his metaphysical system seemed highly abstract and convoluted at first glance. The kind of thing you see philosophers do to either seem like they are covering new ground or to make their ideas seem more sophisticated than perhaps they are. The use of invented words is a good example of this, like Heidegger's Dasein. Whitehead invents words, or new meaning for existing ones, in order to make his thoughts clear. Concrescence, ingress, prehend, etc. But in the end, I may have made a hasty judgment. It turns out there are more reasons to invent words than trying to make your arguments sound sophisticated. Sometimes there are ideas for which language has not yet invented a word. Sometimes language fails to fully capture your intended meaning. Sometimes you have to invent a new symbol so that something can mean exactly what you're trying to convey. And what Whitehead was trying to convey matches up surprisingly well with my own mystic intuitions 
with some key differences. The system that Whitehead laid out, which he deduces from metaphysical necessity rather than from any prior tradition, is that nature is a process. The process itself is sentient and exists partially as eternal potentiality and partially as experience. The unity that this composes, Whitehead calls the creative advance. Much like Jordan Peterson describes the mythological Ouroboros, Whitehead calls it the union of opposites, of God's primordial nature and its consequent nature, or the union of conscious and unconscious. His insistence that there is no subject-object dichotomy also bears this out. It's the union of subject and object. Whitehead describes God setting off an experiential perspective. An occasion or entity, a drop of experience. This is the proverbial first domino, the prime mover, the force that kicked off an eternal process of generating and transforming experience. Now you might ask, Experience of what exactly? And that's a great question. If we refer back to how Whitehead described the creative advance, we can see the union of conscious and unconscious, of subject and object. What are these except references to consciousness, to the sentience that Whitehead sees in all things? Then it, it is sentience itself that's being experienced. As I've described in my own mystic experience, consciousness experiencing consciousness, or as Dr. Shirstead Hughes would probably prefer, sentience experiencing sentience. This is where my own intuition diverges from Whitehead's, at least on the surface. Whitehead, like me, takes this process of experiencing to be a sort of fractal network, which extends into and within itself Experience in the form of non-material entities, whatever that means, continue indefinitely. They combine, compound, accumulate, and interact, creating ever more experience and ever more depth of possible experience. From these combinations and interactions, new and novel things are made. These things seem, according to Whitehead, to exist non-materially in the form of potentiality, perhaps unconsciously. These experiences build until they eventually become God. By God, Whitehead means the force by which potentiality can become actuality, by which experience can be made materially real. God then seems to pick up where the creative advance left off, bringing being into existence and filling it with more and more of the potential from which it came. And all of this is done, according to Whitehead, for God's own enjoyment. Why? Because presumably, God enjoys doing what it does, what it is. How does that sit with you, that last bit in particular? Yeah, not particularly convincing to me either. Listen, I love this, and many of the things that Whitehead lays out. I have personally intuited in the mystic experience. I too believe that God is one, and that what God is is something like sentience, 
I too believe that sentience pervades all of material reality. I believe that God is the generative union of opposites, consciousness and unconsciousness, together, subject and object, together. I too believe that sentience accumulates somehow into material being, and that all things prehend or exist within the one. Here's where I can't follow Whitehead. I do not see God as distinct from the creative advance. I'm not even sure why Whitehead needs to even propose such a thing. Why can't concrescence flow from the creative advance directly? Why is an intermediary needed? Call it God or anything else. I think this boils down to a difference in how Whitehead and I define God as a concept. To me, God is not a demiurge. It is not a creative force working at the behest of the creative advance, but is the creative advance. The power to exist as both matter and mind is already part of the process. And let's circle back to the purpose of God for a minute. Whitehead thinks of God as a sort of tool of the creative advance, and concrescence, creation, as a source of joy. Now, I get the sentiment. It lean, leans towards the notion of self-fulfillment, like God is that which creates. So the act of creation fulfills what God is. God creates, so creation is something God enjoys, right? Or perhaps more correctly, creation makes God what it is. It cannot be God without it. This angle is more in line with my own. I see God as consciousness, as that which experiences. And the material cosmos is that which can be experienced. To my mind, God became that which can be experienced in order to experience. In the same way, God fulfills itself by becoming the thing that allows it to be what it is. It experiences. Now, both perspectives describe God as self-created and self-contained, which I'd argue is what makes it God by definition. Where we really differ is in God's motivation. Whitehead proposes that God creates for the joy of it. I say that God creates in order to make itself what it is, in order to be God. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>